0: Mm. Yeah. So the first thing that drew me in was the founder. So Jacob Horn, for those who aren't familiar, is actually someone who's uh, known kind of across crypto and is kind of a legend in the Coinbase lore. Uh, He's a very early Coinbase employee who wrote this article while I was there called The Playful Paradigm. And this was an article in late or mid 2018. And for me, it it talked about basically NFTs and what they would be used for and all these different market functionalities. He basically called 2021 in in 2018. And for me, it was a very fundamental moment in crypto for me because I dabbled in NFTs, I had bought some CryptoKitties, but I wasn't really, I hadn't thought about it too much. And so his article when I was working at Coinbase was a really big motivator for me to gain more interest and be more passionate about NFTs.
1: the PFP. I'm your host Renren and today we have a very special guest. He is the man behind Bobu's card shop which is actually the first community-led project to come out of the Bobu fractionalization experiment. He's also a part of Red Bean Radio formerly known as Red Bean Soup where they had just celebrated their 52nd episode marking one year of bringing news and good vibes to the Azuki community but Beyond that, he's a former winemaker intern, a smart man who's worked for companies like Coinbase, Zaprify, and currently Zora, and someone who has a strong conviction in NFTs and crypto altogether. Nader, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here, and thank you for taking the time to come onto the podcast and share your knowledge with us.
0: No worries. Thank you, Renrun. Appreciate it. This is my first ever podcast appearance, so very excited for this.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible to be able to, you know, have all these different guests and be on the podcast. Cause I really envy the way how you guys do Twitter spaces. Cause Twitter spaces are tough, man. It, you have to be able to uh, work with what you have in the present moment. It's, it's, it's a lot. And I think both forms of podcast and Twitter spaces are great for this space. And I think. Uh, podcast allows us to have a record almost. Of course, you can record Twitter spaces, but mm. this allows us to have a record of, Hey, this is who roses hey this is who sunway is and, and now Naders. you know it's it's really interesting mm-hmm. in that sense and you know I, i'm just glad to be able to have you on the podcast because it's gonna be exciting uh we have a lot of uh a lot of web3 talk to talk about and your knowledge is vast so i think the audience will learn a lot from you <laughs>
0: well yeah no i'm excited and for me renren it's just i i've just been so long in the space for crypto that i just understand these things and like I've just kind of grokked at them a little bit longer, and I just love talking about them. So I'm a big consumer of podcasts, but I'm appreciative today to be able to talk on a podcast and, and maybe share some of my insights around crypto with people today. Oh, man, I'm so excited. <laughs> so before
1: before we explore your, your Web3 identity and everything you're accomplishing in the space, I'd like to first learn more about how you would describe your sort of origin story from talking to you on discord and listening to you on twitter spaces i know that you're a very knowledgeable person and you're somehow able to simplify what the blockchain is or how erc 721a works it's it's honestly just a joy to listen to you and i know you're very humble and a hard-working person so what's your story like
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not as interesting as maybe people think. You know, it's not like I fell in like a, a vat of radioactive material and, <laughs> and gained a superpower to understand crypto. Uh, for me, I've just been around a long time. I originally got into crypto late 2016, bought a little bit of Bitcoin. It went up in price, you know, like most people I'm like, oh, well, you know, what is this Bitcoin thing? I don't really know what it is. And that kind of got the gears turning. And I think the first thing for me that really got me interested in crypto was um, back in late 2016, there was like this currency exchange happening in India where they were replacing, uh, I think it's like the 500 rupee note for a different one. Mm-hmm. And so in India, a lot of people actually keep, you know, their their funds under at their house at their home. And so there was this massive run on the bank where people were like, you know, get, getting trampled to death and like dying of heat exhaustion and all these crazy things. I was like, oh my gosh, like that's kind of crazy that. Uh, A couple people in a room got together, snapped their fingers and said, you know, this piece of paper that we all agree is valuable in a few weeks is not going to be. And there was this kind of like social chaos around that. And so that kind of got me down the the Bitcoin rabbit hole thinking about what is money like, you know, what are these pieces of paper that we say are valuable and like what are the the paradigms that we have around money. Um, But it wasn't really until 2017 that I really started falling down the Ethereum rabbit hole and understanding the implications of that. Uh, primarily around the ICO bubble. Uh, And for those who aren't familiar, the ICO bubble back in 2017 was when everyone was doing an ERC-20 token around, you know, decentralized Uber or, you know, decentralized DoorDash or these crazy kind of futuristic ideas that were way too early, but all you needed was a website and a white paper and you could kind of receive funding for these. And while most of these ICOs were kind of scams or, you know, somewhat nefarious projects, and most people kind of poo-pooed it in the crypto space, even you know most people were Bitcoiners back then, proportionally. Um, I found it quite interesting because the inherent technology of being able to coordinate capital amongst people all across the Internet. And this mechanism was truly fascinating to me. And while I understood the use cases for it back in 2017 were, you know, either you know fraudulent or illegal or whatever, um, the technology itself, the implications of it were very clear to me. That like, okay, this programmatic blockchain is going to be really interesting going forward. And so um, that's just kind of like my mental model of how I kind of, you know, kind of got into crypto, started getting like super obsessed with it in 2017. Um, friend of friend of mine worked at Coinbase. Um, and it was like, hey, you want to come work at, at Coinbase? And back then it was like a 200-ish something, 300-ish person company. So it was super small. I actually got to meet Brian Armstrong, the CEO, at like a bar one night because they were having like a small social thing. Like it was like very small community, very small company, uh, very personable. And uh, yeah, I worked there for a couple of years. It was an amazing experience. Um, also about the winemaking. Yeah, just to backtrack on that a little bit, Renren. Yeah. Uh, originally, I wanted to be a doctor in college. And so I made oh, a biology. True? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, see, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was like, hey, doctor it seems cool. Why don't I try that? Um, but then I think around my junior year, I had realized I don't want to be a doctor. And so, um, yeah, I kind of had this like, oh, what do I do now? And so I was like, why don't I try winemaking? I can use a biology degree for winemaking. So did that uh interning for that but anyhow that's that's a that's a whole other story maybe another episode but um kind of fast forward yeah working at coinbase it was amazing one of my favorite companies I've ever worked for um, you know the atmosphere there the people i met the 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 ingenuity of, of those early crypto people was just really inspiring uh and then yeah i've done a bunch of different things worked in DeFi. you know worked at work now i currently work at zora doing a lot of different uh, nft related things so yeah it's been an amazing journey and i i've just enjoyed every second of it that's an incredible origin story.
1: Um, before we go deep into learning about your journey through crypto and how it started, there's one tweet that you tweeted that popped in my mind while you were talking there. And mm. it relates to choosing to become a doctor in biology, but then pivoting because you realized it wasn't what you wanted. The tweet you wrote out said, working in crypto feels like a second chance for a lot of people that feel like they picked the wrong major in college. Mm. When I saw that tweet, I was really interested to hear if that closely related to your own situation. So I guess uh, it's safe to say that crypto gave you that second chance.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, You know, like many people that go to college today, when I I talk to younger folks, you know, I'm like, why are you going to college? Like, what's the reason? Because for me, I just went to go. You know, like many people, Mm -hmm. we feel pressured because... At least back in the day, you know, it's like if you didn't go to college, you might be perceived as like maybe not very intelligent or, you know, you just don't have a lot of options in life. When in reality, like, I don't think you should go to college unless you have a clear idea of why you're passionate about a topic or subject. So for me, yeah, crypto has been like a second chance or a second opportunity uh, to educate and learn and gain a foothold in an industry because it's so new. It's such a frontier. Like, I really do think of it like a Wild West that really anyone can kind of... With not very much experience or background or knowledge, can really hone their skills, work really hard, and you can get a full time job. You can work in crypto, even though you don't have this degree or major or whatever or previous experience, right? So, no, totally, totally agree with that. Still,
1: yeah, the you know what? It's the difference. I would say is that the access is incredible. Obviously, Web two kind of opened it up for for everyone, but there was still that stigma of hey, you got to go to school. And that's it. That's how you succeed in life. But I feel like Web3 has opened up another avenue. And when you combine both Web2 and Web3, you just have this ability to access more information and uh, learn and do so many more other things than just go to school. Obviously, I I still think school has its importance, uh, but it's the essence of learning what... Uh, what you want to follow right because mm-hmm. a lot of people back then used to say you know follow follow your passion but I find that most people don't know what their passion is and I feel like you gotta instead follow your curiosity into things and and I think when you follow your curiosity it, you can find your passion that way and then you can start to master and find success in whatever you find and for you it was web 3 and it was mm-hmm. crypto so uh <laughs> it's, it's it's quite an amazing uh journey for you to be able to go from deciding to not become a doctor because it wasn't for you and then going into a little bit of winemaking and then finding the the ICO bubble of 2017 and and so I kind of want to look into that a little bit as well it seems like the philosophy sort of brought you in to to web3 when you were looking back at that ICO bubble and you've you've seen a lot of the the history of web3. Can you just kind of walk us through what it was like for you in that ICO bubble and how it led to you getting a job at all these web3 companies?
0: Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about the ICO mania and all that, and then we can transition to working at Coinbase. Um, Yeah, the ICO mania was really weird, really weird time. It's kind of like, it was very similar to the kind of the NFT bubble that happened in 2021, where you're seeing like these ridiculous, you know, poop coin or, you know, all this like no utility token or all these random coins that no one's ever heard of and they've been generated five seconds ago, kind of pop into existence and see ridiculous trading volumes. And again, going under the, to the underlying core thesis of the technology, many times technology in its early stages is very infantile, unassuming, whimsical, whatever description you want to give it. But basically people underestimate it in a lot of different ways. Um, look at the Internet. Right. When the Internet first came out, people were like, What can you do with it oh you can send me mail why would i use email when i can use regular mail right but because no one had an email back then so it's like a pain to like generate an email but once kind of we hit this network effect of enough people having email it became obvious that the way that you the default communication on the internet was email or if you look at the mobile uh, kind of revolution right originally most mobile applications were these stupid like games or they were like lightsaber apps or like you know like a, oh, remember there was like an app that was like you, you yes. click a button and it's like it makes a shotgun sound or like there was like the beer drinking <laughs> app or like, you know like there's all these dumb apps but those are the vast majority of of the apps are available back in the day on this on the play store and the and Android. so um, you know in the early phases because it's a new frontier not many people understand it you really only have people who don't have a background right like Back in the early days of mobile or web, why would an established engineer want to go to this new frontier when they already have an established career making lots of money in the field that they already work in? Where it's like the younger people, people who have are doing it for fun or building these kind of weird and kooky things uh, are the ones that get in it first. And also to some to some extent, also um, unfortunately, like people that have nefarious purposes and reasons tend to use fringe technology and cutting edge technology because it gives them an edge. Because many people don't understand it or it's it's hard to enforce rules and regulations upon. Take, for example, kind of the classic Nigerian prince emailing your grandma and That's like right. tricking, yeah. you know, like like people, you know, early technology tends to be like kind of clunky, hard to use. The applications look kind of strange to people who are on the outside and it's used by a lot of criminals. You know, cell phones, for example, another another one were primarily used by, you know, um, not great people because it gave them an advantage over authorities because they were able to quickly communicate with each other. So yeah, um, that's kind of my synopsis on, on 2017 and the ISO bubbles technology. And you know
1: what? Mm. Not only that, I mean, you still see those sorts of scams in, in, in web two. So it's not like it's just going to go away. It's, it's always there. And I think uh, we do see a lot of those sorts of new, new scams to the technology that web three has, but those sorts of you know DM scams, they're they're always going to be there. But mm-hmm. it's the the important part is the education of it all, right? And and education uh, educating people about security. Yep. And I think that's how we 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 definitely have to move forward that way.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's twofold. It's two different things. It's um the technology will get easier to use, right? So that's one side of it. It's like technology will get cleaner and easier to use. I know today people complain about crypto UIs and being hard and clunky to use, but trust me, back in twenty seventeen It was a nightmare. You were lucky if your MetaMask connected and it submitted a transaction. Okay. Like like just that basic functionality, like major crypto projects. If you could connect your wallet and submit the transaction with no like troubleshooting or you know, opening up the the console to see what is breaking and all that other stuff, you know, you were you were that was really good. That was really good crypto UX. So it has gotten better over time, but it will continue to get better. So that's one side. I agree with you, Renan. Is it'll just get easier to use. And the other thing is people will get better educated and they'll understand, right? Like you know, the Nigerian Prince scam isn't as prevalent as it once was because most people have just learned to be more skeptical on the internet. And I think as time goes on in crypto, people will become better at understanding like, oh, this is like a common phishing attack or like this is like this offer on this random NFT in my wallet. Don't do that because of X, Y, Z. Like just uh, colloquially, people will understand like these attack vectors. Absolutely.
1: It's, it's really crazy how that back then you couldn't even connect uh, using MetaMask or you would be lucky to. You know what? So you've been around for so long. Could you take us through like a, a sort of history lesson <laughs> of what it's, <laughs> what this space has been like in the beginning and how it's grown to now?
0: Yeah, for sure. Because it's, it's changed a lot culturally. So back in the day, and again, back in the day, I, I use very liberally here, I mean like 2016, 2017, the vast majority of people in crypto were Bitcoiners. They were only Bitcoiners. They held and bought Bitcoin. That was it. And that was the primary way that you got onboarded into the space was you made a Coinbase account, you bought a little Bitcoin, and it just sat there, right? And now it feels like the industry has moved on from Bitcoin in a lot of ways. Like most people that I talk to that are new to crypto or new to the industry, the way that they were onboarded wasn't through buying a little bit of Bitcoin. It was through buying ETH to buy an NFT. And so we're starting to see that people are moving away from this Bitcoin focused as the center of the crypto universe. And there's a lot of different applications and chains. And actually that, you know, while money is a core use case of blockchains and blockchain technology, it's like probably one of the most important ones. Um, there are a lot more beyond that. And back in the day, people were very skeptical of Ethereum. Mo- many people, I don't know, many is probably a strong word, but I, it was not an uncommon opinion in crypto that Ethereum was a scam. And that everything built on top of it was also a scam or extremely sketchy. But again, it goes back to it's just really, really early technology and it's like easy for scammers to use. So, yeah, it's changed a lot. And I think the narrative around Bitcoin being the primary dominant crypto, that's probably the biggest shift that I've seen um, in, in the crypto space. It's like people are just kind of now more open to the fact that Ethereum exists and it is legitimate and there are things that you can do on it that aren't scams
1: that's incredible people thought ethereum was a scam really yeah i I, I I can't imagine that now obviously with how (laughs) how much work they've put into uh you know expanding ethereum and making Mm -hmm. it better uh creating more scalability through layer two like it's the merge happened you know there's there's so much and to to think that people once thought Ethereum was a scam is mind-boggling to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was never on board with that. I mean, I, I knew it was an innovative piece of technology. But um, yeah, the, that's, again, that's probably more of a Bitcoin maximalist. You would label that person now who still holds out that that thought process. And to, to be fair, Ren-Ren, to those people back then, you know, it's like anything in crypto. It's really hard to have the nuance and and context to understand why something is interesting or why it's not a scam. Like, I understand back then why so many people were skeptical of Ethereum because there were basically only the only thing happening on it was ICO scams. Like, I mean, so Mm. from that perspective, I understand. But it's that nuance, the time that it takes to research and kind of grok at this thing to make sure to, to realize it's not a scam. And that's that's kind of how I felt about crypto on a macro perspective as time has gone on. Like kind of the like the earlier that someone got into crypto, the more like. let's just say interesting they are right because i think like getting into bitcoin in 2011 like to have the under there's two kinds of people who got into bitcoin 2011 there are people who had phds in like computer science and cryptography and understood hashing functions and all these complex things that make the blockchain data structure what it is and then there are people who believed in like you know i don't know more ethereal like I don't want to say anything, Renvo, mm. but you know what I'm saying. Like a little yes, more spiritual. Yeah. They're a little more spiritual. Let's just leave it at that. You know, they take things on faith. And so, um, you know, I, yeah. So like, because again, back in the day, Bitcoin was kind of this crazy wild thing. And the interfaces for it were terrible. Like, you know, the way that block explorers looked, there was no like real web page. It was just this kind <laughs> of like, it was just this gob of data. So like, I don't know, like to be someone back in the day in 2011, 2012 to... Believe and under like to to get into Bitcoin, you had to be kind of a really interesting person. And I feel like as crypto has become more user friendly, more easy, you know, more use cases, all these different things like the average person who gets into crypto is a little more normal. Um, because you don't need to be a PhD in computer science, and you don't need to have all these crazy spiritual beliefs or ideas to have faith in these magic absolutely. internet yep. beans. You use it, and therefore you understand why this thing is valuable and, and why it makes sense that it's, it's its core technology.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. People have, at this stage, people have built a lot on top of. Uh, networks like Ethereum, mm-hmm. and so these use cases certainly make it easier for someone to come into uh, this space and be like, okay, yeah, like I'm buying Ethereum and using it to buy NFTs. Just an easier transition versus back then. So for for you, what was it like for you to to find Ethereum, uh, learn more about it, and dive into how it works and the decentralized apps that were built on top of it?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think for me, it was just kind of this consistent puzzle that I couldn't quite figure out. And to me, I really like intellectual challenges. Like I like to dive deep. I like to understand why things are a certain way. I don't don't usually like to take things at, at face value. And so for me, what I found so fascinating about crypto and specifically Ethereum back in the day was it was kind of this onion that you know, as much time and energy as I would spend kind of studying it and researching it and and just trying to get a deeper understanding, it always felt like there was another layer, like I could never get to the center. And so that's what really draws me to to crypto space and the NFT space is that because this technology is so revolutionary, so innovative, it's this ever-ending like kind of rabbit hole. You can always keep falling down rabbit holes of like really, really interesting and novel, unique things. So I would say, yeah, that's what kind of got me going was this thing i couldn't quite understand and yet everyone was talking about back then and um you know what is this thing i i just i just and a lot of people to be honest ran back in the day would just take it at face value it's like oh yeah it's like this is this is ethereum and number go up and like numbers going up and so it's it must <laughs> be good right like i'm making like maybe people are like i'm making money on it it can't be bad how is it bad and i was like well i don't I don't know about that. So for me, it was just like this this skepticism, and I think that's what's kept me healthy and alive in crypto so long is this kind of perpetual skepticism that I have about literally everything and, and having to know why and how does this thing work.
1: Yeah. So the, so there it is. It was the curiosity of how does Ethereum work, and then it's become your passion now, and mm. you've you've started to work in this industry. So, so you told the story about kind of how you got into Coinbase and from, from Coinbase to Zaprify to currently Zora, what did you learn from these companies that you worked in in Web3?
0: Right, right. So for Coinbase, I learned a lot actually. That's probably the one, mostly just because I worked there the longest. Uh, I was there for a little under two years. Uh, like I said, amazing experience. Really enjoyed all my coworkers. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of them still today. Um, for me, I didn't have a programming experience at that point. I was just fresh out of college. And so this is like my first real big boy job. And so when I originally joined Coinbase, I was like, I wanted to work in crypto. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I told my friend, uh, hey, I'll, I'll mop the floors. I don't care. I'll, as long as it gets me a job at this company, because I know that this space is the future, I'll take it. That's and me. so yeah. I started working there in early 2018. Um, and originally started on the customer support side doing the like, um, they're called SEPA payments. So it's like European wire transfers basically is probably the easiest way to explain it. So basically working in traditional finance payment systems. So, hey, I sent in 10,000 euros to Coinbase. I can't see them in my account. What's going on here? So I get escalated a lot of the bigger cases and kind of track these down. And, you know, I'm not gonna go into the details, but long story short, run run, the accounting system for traditional finance is just terrible. It's literally oh, yeah. just there's no way to guarantee or verify that a payment has been received. So people would send us you know, tens of thousands of euros. And sometimes like because this system is literally built from like technology in the 70s called Cobalt, you know, it's like just really, really, archa- really archaic infrastructure. You just like you just don't know whether you actually receive the money. So like me as an analyst trying to figure out, OK, did we actually receive these 10,000 euros there's no dashboard or viewer or way for me to communicate with our partner bank to know for sure. You have to like, basically, you know, keep it short here. You basically compile a list of all the missing transfers and their IDs. And then you have to send that to someone at the partner bank. And then someone at the partner bank has to like review all of those on their own database. So it's like basically, People send us information. We transfer that to the partner bank. Then the partner bank has to cross-reference that against their database oh periodically. God. And this this process can take weeks. You know, if it's a large payment, it could take months. So um, these things are crazy to, to deal with. Ben, so originally started on the SEPA team. And then people quickly realized, like, I was one of the few people who understood how crypto worked at like a relatively decent level at that point in time. And so I was transferred over to the very small team that was the crypto payments team. And it was two people, oh, okay. it was me and one other guy at that point in time again, because Coin was such a small company. And we were dealing with cases like, Hey, I sent in you know sixty thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. Why didn't I receive it? And that system was a lot easier because hey, send me can you show me the transaction hash, right? Like, yeah, did you right. actually send the crypto? And I would know within 30 seconds whether or not of getting the hash, whether someone actually sent the crypto to us to one of our addresses. And so to me, it was like uh wow, that even further instilled my confidence in crypto because it was like I went from like the SEPA team doing traditional payments, which would take weeks to like or months to like actually confirm, to literally I could confirm this in 30 seconds. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is the future. Like regardless of the smart contract stuff or whatever, like literally just four payments, like this old money system is so archaic that it's it's gonna be completely usurped by this this much more efficient, faster mechanism. It's literally like going from sending physical mail to sending email, right? Like physical mail, you're somewhat gated to your jurisdiction. takes a long time to send and receive. Sometimes it can just straight up get lost. You know, the mail yeah, can just get lost. Right. Whereas email, it's instant. It's globally accessible. You can send email to anyone in the world with an internet connection. Um, so to me, that was like the huge learning from Coinbase. is just like the backend infrastructure of finance is so archaic and broken and the crypto is going to be a huge upgrade. So um, yeah, there's a great experience. Uh, wow. Then I decided... I decided to leave Coinbase uh, to pursue some more engineering stuff. So I went to a coding boot camp, had a really good time, learned a lot of things because I wanted to dive more into the engineering side and just because at that point I was coding on the weekends and I was just learning how to code and um, was starting to do some really fun stuff with crypto. And and um, yeah, Coinbase was starting to grow bigger in this two years I was there. It went from being like a 300, 200, high 200s, low 300s company to about like 1500 people. Um, so we saw massive growth. So that was a crazy massive, experience as yeah. well. Yeah. And so company had kind of grown. There wasn't really an opportunity for me to get, get, an, engin- get an engineering role there. So, so I decided to leave to go to a coding boot camp. And uh, unfortunately, this is, you know, when I graduated, this is during when COVID hit. Uh, so
1: oh, geez. Yeah. Not,
0: not the best time to uh, no. make the career change. So uh, ended up doing a bunch of remote hackathons for ETH Global did a bunch of solo ones, won a couple prizes on some of the projects I built. Wow. One of them was actually called Podcast Pools, which is really interesting. Which was basically, and this is um, late 2020, I built this where. There's a podcast and every week there's an NFT minted against an RSS feed and that podcast NFT goes into a lottery contract and then people buy lottery tickets and then all the revenue from the lottery tickets goes to the podcast creator and then one lucky winner gets the podcast NFT and this is called podcast oh, cool. pools it was way back in the day a little bit ahead of its time I look back at that now and I'm like I wonder what what would have happened if we had actually if I pursued that full time. But uh, yeah, super cool project. But yeah, anyhow, um, started coding on my own, won a couple hackathons, uh, then ended up getting a job at Zapper, uh, which is kind of like a DeFi dashboard. Now it's kind of transitioned to a Web3 dashboard. Uh, was a product manager, an engineer, that, or full stack engineer there. Um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. Uh, the company also grew kind of relatively fast. And um, it was just kind of, the biggest takeaway from there was working with a large code base and kind of understanding how to build systems that scale a little bit better um working as an engineer like you kind of get to see like one bad kind of line of code can if if enough people are using it like if a hundred thousand people use your application in one day one line of code can actually really kind of shoot yourself in the foot so understanding Ah, uh code that scales a little bit better and what that looks like was probably the biggest thing and then clean yeah yeah, keeping it clean and not only clean but just efficient as well like if it it really racks it for a Fun little toy app on the weekend, which is what I was building before I joined there, you know, a small inefficiency if 20 or 30 people use this app isn't a big deal. But a small inefficiency that 100,000 people you use every day is, you know, that adds up. So um, understanding that scale from a programming side is actually really important to me. Um, and then, yeah, recently – well, not so recently. I worked at Zora for about a year and a half now. Uh, worked at Zora. Uh, really cool experience. I work here more on, like, the technical writer, technical research side. So I do a little bit of everything. I educate engineers on on crypto and some of the more detailed stuff and, and just try and, like, kind of like the, the crypto guy at the company, just be someone who's kind of a voice of, like, what's going on in the space and, and, and uh, yeah, how crypto works under the hood.
1: Oh, how come you decide to go that route and not uh... – be sort of like an engineer and, and taking on that role of educating?
0: Hmm. I think for me, working as an engineer, especially someone who's kind of relatively new, I mean, I'm not as new as I once was, but working as an engineer at a startup is somewhat hard because um, you're very on an island, you're very responsible for your own stuff. And so for me, I felt like uh, I would like to have some sort of mentorship, but I really wanted to work at Zora regardless of the role. So I felt like, hey, I want to be a part of this company. It doesn't matter what I'm doing can transition to an engineering role later if I want, but it's important that I've joined this company because I felt like it was just so interesting to me. What? So then what drew you into Zora? Mm. Yeah. So the first thing that drew me in was the founder. So Jacob Horn, for those who aren't familiar is actually someone who's uh, known kind of across crypto and is kind of a legend in the Coinbase lore. Uh He's a very early Coinbase employee who wrote this article while I was there called The Playful Paradigm. And this was an article in late or mid 2018. And for me, it was it talked about basically NFTs and what they would be used for and all these different market functionalities. He basically called 2021 in, 20, in 2018. And for me, it was a very fundamental moment in crypto for me because I dabbled in NFTs. I had bought some CryptoKitties, but I wasn't really I hadn't thought about it too much. And so his article when I was working at Coinbase was a really big motivator for me to gain more interest and be more passionate about NFTs. Because I like DeFi. I like working in it. Um, You know, it was a great experience. But for me, NFTs are really the thing that that make me the most passionate. And so uh, Jacob's article was the one that got me into NFTs. And I heard he was starting an NFT company. I was like, okay, I can't. I can't pass it up. It's, it's, That's it's amazing, yeah. It's meant to be. Like this guy, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he really knows what he's talking about. And so I was like, whatever he's working on, doesn't matter what, I have to be a part of that project. Um, and then one of the other founders I had known at Coinbase as well. And so kind of the original Zora team was a lot of Coinbase OGs. I would really liked working at Coinbase. I liked the culture. I liked the people. Um, so it just felt like a really good fit. So, yeah.
1: That's crazy. What a what a transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I you know what, I got to learn more about this Jacob Horn. And could you give our audience a bit of a rundown of what Zora is as a company <laughs> and what they're doing in this space?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It's one I ask myself all the time. So one thing as well, Ren, Ren as a as a startup, you're always trying to adapt and shift and the way I think of it is like you're pouring out water onto a table and it kind of like disseminates across the table until you find product market fit until that water reaches a crevice in the table and then you kind of know what you're doing. So Zora does a lot of different things. I consider us more of like an NFT research hub than anything else. Like I, we do a lot of research. We do a lot of really cool stuff. Like the information, the people I work with every day are some of the, probably some of the brightest people I've ever met and worked with. So it's like an honor to work alongside a lot of these people. Cause I know they're going to be there are, some of them are already legends in the NFT space, but I know going forward, a lot of them, a lot of the people I know today are going to be looked back and was like, "Wow, I got to work with that person." Um, so yeah, um, but what does Zora do? So we do a lot of things. Like I said, um, I think our two biggest or three biggest offerings right now are we have what's known as the Create tool, which allows anyone to deploy their own NFT edition or collection in just no code. You just click buttons, you upload your art, and you're able to deploy your own NFT collection. Really intuitive, really easy to use. It's like probably one of my favorite applications in NFT land right now because it is so. It's very minimal, but it's very, very easy to use. Like extremely clean UI, very fun. Um, So that's the create tool. The other thing as well is um, we have this thing called Nouns Builder, which I know we'll get into later. I don't want to nouns is a whole other rabbit hole, but Nouns Builder is basically (laughs) this thing that allows you to deploy your own DAO in minutes so you don't have to know how smart contracts work you don't need to know how DAOs work under the hood you just come to our website you click a couple buttons and you're able to deploy your own DAO like I said in minutes so and then the last thing is we have our API which basically indexes a lot of specialized NFT data in from the Ethereum blockchain Um, so things that aren't very common so for example all the nouns builder proposals, those are all indexed and categorized into our API. So we do a lot of things not only in the NFT space, but also we're, we're dipping our toe into the DAO space as well.
1: Wow. Zora is, seems to be building uh, a lot. And I think it's really important what they're doing with uh, the Create tool as well, where yep. you know, making it simple, right? Because that's probably the biggest hurdle in this space mm-hmm. is onboarding people and people mostly don't have an idea where to start and i think that it's important to uh in order to move forward in onboarding people it's really important to have a very simplified ui ux where people can just click of a button create an nft collection or click of a button buy an nft right it's it's got to be simple and that's that's really impressive when did they release that that feature
0: uh create tool or nouns builder run. uh
1: create the create tool
0: yeah i think both builder and create were released in 2022 create might have oh, okay. been so recently, the proto yeah. the proto create the the application because again we do a lot of random experiments and for fun things at yeah. zora and the create tool actually started as like someone's Fun little experiment that ended up being a product. <laughs> Sounds like so, so much fun. Yeah, no, I mean one of my favorite things about working at Zora is it's a very uh, supportive company. Like if you have an idea or a project or something you want to build on, or like, hey, I have this wacky idea. I don't know. People are very supportive at the company. To like, hey, just try it. And that's kind of the philosophy at Coinbase as well. It was kind of the model was kind of a it's a you can build your own startup within a startup. It's kind of like a mini incubator for different projects. Yes and projects within the company so yeah create actually came from like a, a smaller project that someone was working in within zora so yeah a lot of people have a lot of side hobbies outside of zora as well like i have who's card shop or um, a lot of people are musicians or artists that work at our company so they don't just work at zora they have other ha- hobbies and passions so uh yeah i, I really like working there because it's it feels like i'm working on a, on a startup in a startup so it's almost like a launch pad
1: for the people who are creating. uh, And then they can create something like the create tool and have Mm -hmm. it to be produced. Um, So you did talk about nouns builder. So this is a whole nother rabbit hole. And (laughs) and I I do really want to go into it, though, because I find it fascinating. Would you say that the nouns DAO is the purest form of a DAO?
0: Mm, yeah, I like that word, pure. It's definitely, in my opinion, Rinrin, the way I frame it is it's the pushing the technology to its limits, right? Like when you talk about building something that no one person controls or something that's truly decentralized, I think Nouns is definitely optimized for building on Ethereum and pushing it to its limits. It's incredible. Can you can you give us
1: a, uh, a rundown of what is the Nouns style and what is the Nouns builder?
0: Yeah, I'll do my best, but it is a topic that Myself, I didn't understand on first kind of experiencing it. I kind of looked at it. It's like, what is this? I don't really get it and moved on. And that's most people experiences with nouns like because it is kind of it's a really novel concept. So uh, I'll do my best in this period. So you're probably familiar with the nouns glasses or the noggles. There are these square glasses. They're all over Twitter, if you ever notice. And basically the way nouns works is it's one NFT is minted every day and put up for auction anyone can bid on this auction. And then the winning bid, that ether goes to a treasury. And that treasury, the way it's delegated and used is by voting on all the NFTs that have been minted. So originally there was one NFT, it was put up for auction, and then the funds from that winning auction went into a treasury. And then day two, another NFT was minted, day three, day four, day five, and it runs on perpetually forever. There will be always one new noun minted every day. And then anyone, well, not anyone, you have to own a noun, a certain amount of nouns, depending on the total supply. It's a percentage, but you can create a proposal to say, hey, I want to fund this art project for 100 ETH. You create a proposal on chain and then everyone votes on it. And then based on the result, if it passes, then the DAO governance contract trustlessly moves that amount of ETH from one address to the recipient address.
1: Interesting. Is there, is there a cap in how many uh, nouns are minted? Nope, it's infinite. Ah, so it's infinite. Yep. Okay, so it, it truly focuses on building as a community, as as a, an organization, right? Right. And I think right. that's fascinating because uh, they have come out with proposals that have been really fun to watch. What would you say is your favorite proposal
0: to come out of the nouns now? Ooh, so this is a super nerdy one, uh, but it's proposal one ninety. And proposal 190 was to create an open edition. And I'm biased here because they use the Zora create tool to build it, but they called it <laughs> on chain. And so what this proposal was, was to create an open edition for NounsDAO. And in every proposal, you include a transaction which executes some computation on Ethereum. So most of the time, it's just sending ether from one address to another address to fund some artist or creator to make something. But in this case, this proposal 190 what it did was it the data for the transaction was to call the factory contract to deploy an NFT contract. So for those who aren't familiar, a factory contract is a smart contract that can deploy other smart contracts. So what happened when this proposal passed was the governance contract called a factory contract to deploy an NFT contract. And what? so why this is so novel is that this NFT contract wasn't deployed by an individual acting on the DAO's behalf. It was deployed by the DAO itself, by the governance contract directly calling a factory contract to create an NFT edition.
1: So what do you think this will lead to, this sort of innovation? Uh, Are there any other use cases
0: that can be used for this? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to me of why it's interesting is it, it opens people's minds to the fact that proposals can be much more than just sending ether from one address to another address that you can do these very complex computations, like literally anything. So for example, if let's say the treasury right now for nouns is primarily held in ether, imagine that there was a consensus reach that holding it in ether is actually um, maybe somewhat detrimental, and maybe we should re- rebalance our portfolio to let's say a stable asset like DAI or Rai. And so you could create a governance proposal to swap um, X of percent of Ether in the treasury into a more stable asset like DAI. So you can do more complex computations than just sending Ether. So that's what I think is the biggest ramification of this proposal is like you can literally do anything. You could even deploy another DAO. You could call the Nouns Builder to, to deploy a sub-DAO. You could do all these crazy things um, beyond just sending ETH.
1: Yeah, this this whole DAO and the Nouns Builder, it, it really does seem like they're innovating in the space. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on that. I, I do wish I had a noun. Do you have a Nouns yet?
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, I do not. I think the Nouns go for about 20 or 30 ETHs. So, you know, saving up a little bit for that one. But I don't I don't expect to own one anytime soon. But I am um, I do appreciate their culture. I think they're building a movement that you don't necessarily need to own a Nouns to be a part of. Very similar to the Azuki kind of like, you know, you don't have to own Azuki to be a part of the community. Like, I feel that that's one thing I love about Azuki is like, it's not this... You have to own a Rolex to be in the club kind of vibe. Maybe that's some people's vibe, yeah. but for me, it's more of like, it's a creative IP that you personally own if you own an Azuki, but if you don't, like, um, like we appreciate everyone and all the creators and artists that are a part of it. But um, one one part I did want to touch upon about Nouns really quick run around that we didn't have a, a chance to talk about is another reason that Nouns pushes kind of Ethereum to the limits is that all the images are stored on chain. Oh, so yes, that's right. most NFTs, azukis you know, and this is kind of the default standards they they're stored externally. So the images and all the data and information about these NFTs are stored external to the blockchain. And in the case of nouns, it's literally all on chain. So there's no external kind of requirement or resource needed to ever check what a nouns looks like or what its metadata is, because it's literally just stored on chain. As long as Ethereum's up and running, nouns will persist. You'll still be able to retrieve the images. You'll still be able to retrieve the metadata and literally everything. Um, so that's crazy to me.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's why I call uh, nouns DAO the purest form of a DAO because they, mm-hmm. they really try to keep everything decentralized. Yep, it seems like in, in every aspect of what they do, and it's really impressive. And you did say that the nouns DAO, uh, sorry, the nouns builder, uh, anyone can deploy and create your own DAO through that, right?
0: Right, right. So, yeah, it's super easy. You can literally just. You need the only thing you need to do is you need to upload art that you just need to bring art for all the different NFTs. And for those who aren't familiar, nouns and any DAO built by the nouns builder, the art is randomly generated on chain. So when the NFT gets minted, basically it looks at like the block timestamp, the block uh, number, it hashes a bunch of different values together. And that generates the entropy to create the the, the random, quote unquote, uh, combination of traits that, that generate the image. They are really building a lot
1: through that nouns and uh yeah. y- if you guys want to learn more I-, I will have it in the show notes i'm going to link to nader's nouns DAO video which hmm. he actually created and minted on zora so yeah. i i think that as well is pretty pretty awesome that you did that
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's a, in my opinion, I'm biased here, obviously, but I think that's the best educational video on what nouns is it's 10 minutes. It's, it's going to be the best one you're going to find. I didn't want to upload it to YouTube because I'm trying to experiment with new paradigms. Like what does it look like if you mint a video on chain and supporters are able to purchase it or mint it or whatever, rather than just uploading it to YouTube and trying to get like ad revenue or whatever. So yeah, this is a new model. So appreciate anyone who checks that out. Um, One last Thing, one last thing I do want to chat about Renren when it comes to uh, the nouns builder and nouns DAO specifically mm-hmm. is um, why would you want to use this model to build your own DAO, right? Like, what, what is this? Why why is this this model that's better than than yeah. traditional DAOs? So, you know, if you look at like a DeFi application that's trying to decentralize through a DAO, let's take Uniswap for example. Um, The way that they distributed kind of governance of their protocol is via an airdrop, an ERC-20 airdrop, where anyone who'd used the protocol previous to a certain point in time was given free ERC-20 tokens. And yeah, that's great. Who doesn't like free money? But the problem is, is that you kind of have this bystander effect because you basically disseminate all the tokens in this one big go. And then you're expected that everyone's going to participate in community governance. Yeah, which is not the case. Going back to my biology roots here and, and using a biology example, you can think of these DeFi ERC20s as like, uh, they're like our selective species, where it's like a weed or some sort of like insect, like a fruit fly that has many, many offspring, but they like there's a low survivorship rate. Not many of them are going to make it. Sure, you give out your tokens to a lot of people, but how many people at the end of the day are going to show up and vote, right? And nouns kind of takes this idea and takes it to the other end of the spectrum, right? How do we build a community? So rather than just giving all these people tokens all at once, what if we organically grow the community slowly over time by whatever time metric, right? So whether that's once a day, once a week, whatever, Nouns Builder is super configurable. You could make it once a second, you could make it once a year, you could do whatever you want. But nouns DAO specifically is once a day. And so by slowly or more organically growing community, there's a higher percentage likelihood that that person's going to stick around. And the example I like to give is it's a K-selective species. So think like a larger mammal, like a giraffe or a gorilla, where they don't have very many offspring, but there's a higher survivorship rate than something like an R-selective species, like a fruit fly, for example. So that's why to me, Noun styles and noun style dials are so much more interesting because you have this slower growth rate over time where the community is able to organize. I often wonder what would it look like if Azuki started off in like a noun style style thing where there was one Azuki the first day, then two, then three, then four, then five, then six, where it's this slow growth of community, people get to know each other, people get to communicate. And then, you know, it grows over time rather than ten thousand being released all at once. And we have to kind of scatter to figure out who's a part of this and 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 understand who they are and are they a good person and whatever. Um so yeah, I think right. I think yeah. the noun model is really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Um and, and it comes down to, you know, for for a project to be successful, it all comes down to the community mm-hmm. that it fosters, right? So the fact that they took this approach uh, differently than than most uh, projects in this space really highlights how strong that community has become and started, right? Yep. It seems like a really tight-knit
0: group of people. What is their main goal? Yeah, so this goes into kind of the topic of what are DAOs good for and what can we use them? and. Like I said, this is early days, early technology. I feel like we're very much in the the beer app or the shotgun app, the early iPhone app days of DAOs. And so I consider nouns to be a very simple, uh, maybe almost whimsical DAO. But that's a very basic premise. But the underlying technology is very important. So kind of the goal of nouns DAO is to perpetuate the meme. Of the noggles right those square glasses yes yeah. that's the end that's it that's the goal is to make those glasses known and spread as far across the internet as possible and this is usually done by creating some art or some iconic videos for example they partnered with bud light to do a, a super bowl commercial for the last year's super bowl you know like they are they did they they hired some people to create floats at the rose parade you know and again this isn't an organization this isn't a company this is just a smart contract that holds a bunch of ETH that NFTs voted on which address to send the ETH to. And people did it, you know, like that's the coolest part is that there's no entity really. It's just kind of like just people on the internet courting, coordinating together.
1: Purest form of a DAO. Incredible. It's actually incredible. Uh, and so with Azuki, yeah, it's, it's a lot different. Uh, they took the, you know, the, the normal approach uh, and yet, they still have been able to foster such a strong community. And I would obviously, uh, give the, the community a pat on the back for going through so much in the NFT space. And clearly it made us as a whole stronger. But I still do see that bystander effect within, within Azuki. And nothing, nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, that we, we do have the the very... We still have a very passionate community, but we do still have a bit of that bystander effect. And and I do also wonder what it would have been like if we took that nouns approach. And mm-hmm. I think with the way we are now, we can still go in a, a strong direction, especially with how the Azuki team is building. Uh, we do have a, a vast community that is... Continuing to to build alongside them, as well, uh, like you, right, with Bobu's Card Shop. On the topic of Azuki, we've you know talked about kind of your Web three origin story, and so I want to focus on your Azuki story. Mm.
0: Could
1: could could you kind of walk us through through that story? Like, how did you find Azuki? And um, yeah, just walk us through that.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting. uh A buddy of mine, actually, talk, who is a community member as well, showed me the project like super early on. Like I think November, twenty twenty one, like early. No- like I don't like just when they made the Twitter account because I remember following it when they had like seven thousand followers, five thousand somewhere around there. So yeah. it was super small. Uh, and he had pointed it out to me. He's like, "Hey, like." what are your thoughts on anime nfts and i was like eh you know because at that point in time like there hadn't been a really like a good anime nft that had come out yet um that i had seen and had really interested me and he's like oh check this out like it's called azuki and he sent to me i was like oh this is kind of interesting but again you know i'm a I'm a skeptic. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, course, I was like, yeah. eh, you know, I don't know. Sure. It's like a random anime NFT project. It looks cool. Art looks decent. I'll give it a follow. It is what it is, you know? Eh, we'll see. <laughs> and uh, I joined the Discord, but the problem was, is like, uh, it was like a few weeks later, I joined the Discord, but I, I had trouble verifying my phone, or there was like some weird verification error I kept running into. So, oh, really? So, yeah. I never actually entered the Discord super early on, which is kind of like, i'm i kind of regret but it's just it is what it is it's like oh this random nft project i can't get in their discord whatever i'm not going to troubleshoot this like yeah it is what it is uh, right, right and then and then started getting closer to the to the mint date in january and i started seeing like you know obviously the iconic videos that we know today of the guy sleeping and um you know the kid with the poster, the poster. Yeah, yeah. yeah and shall slashing the poster and i was like okay uh this what there's some people this? who, yeah, there, there's some people who know what they're doing here. Like this is this is not just an anime NFT. Because for me, like I'm a huge like, um, even though I'm a nerd, I'm a huge nerd culture guy. Like I love music, I love video game culture, I love lore, you know. And so I could see what they were doing with these videos, like the time they'd spent thinking this out, picking the music, you know. Like I knew. The thought had gone ooh. into this it wasn't like uh it wasn't some project that they were kind of messing around on it was like this is something that they're putting a lot of effort and time into um which was a clear signal to me and so um yeah i, I ended up minting a couple fortunately enough uh right at mint i knew it was going to go fast like i know there was kind of like people at the beginning were like "Ooh, like is it because it was a dutch auction like ooh, yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna buy when it goes to, like Point seven or whatever, and I was like, um, "Oh, those yeah. are the
1: funniest conversations." Yeah,
0: yeah, I was like, I knew these. I I knew a lot because I knew a lot of those people were new to crypto and that they had maybe new That's NFTs right, as well. Yeah. And I was like, I like did the math. I was like, okay, there's like eight thousand NFTs for sale for public auction, and there's like sixty five thousand people in the Discord, and general chat is literally flowing like Twitch chat. Um, yeah, this is no not going to, this, no this is, this is going to mint out immediately. <laughs> so I was literally there at, uh, like an, a minute before the mint spam, refreshing the website, like just like ready to mint. Cause I knew it was like, boom, I just got this transaction in as soon as I could. Um, wow. Yeah. So you didn't so, mint through contract? No, I minted on the website. You, oh, you minted on the website. The website yes, was, it was, it was such a clean experience, right? Mm-hmm. So, I it. so
1: of course, yeah. of course you yeah. had
0: to mint through there. Yeah, and, and and to be honest, like I feel like that um the claw machine is not used enough in Azuki. I mean, I, I feel like that's such an iconic piece that no one really talks about. To me, when I see that claw machine, it's like, dude, it just it's uh I know it's only been like a year or so, but like the nostalgia, the the feeling I get from seeing that claw machine is it's that's the only like Incredible. I get yeah. I yeah, I, I get no other feeling from it in Azuki like it for for whatever. Maybe that'll change in the future, but right now it's like I look at that I'm like, whoa, like because just how crazy that day was for a lot of people. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, so started started that was kind of my journey i remember watching like the the wheel when they spun that i didn't know sunway was was the one who won i watched all three events because it was so cool to me it uh, was so eh? yeah yeah i had no idea i was I, when i listened to your, your podcast with the last week i was like <laughs> oh my god that was him i I had, I had no idea um but yeah in the beginning of azuki though i was pretty quiet i you know just in general i i've never really tweeted too much like i've never i've only used my twitter account to really follow and and maybe occasionally post like a blog post or some random idea I have. I never really consistently tweeted and never really engaged too much online. Um, but slowly over time, like, you know, I felt like in the early days of Zuki it was kind of weird. Because like the hype just kind of grew so quickly. It kind of made me a little bit nervous about like what's the sustainability of this community when it's so hype driven. Right. I think yeah. the hype was deserved because they had done a lot of cool stuff. But it was just kind of getting to the point where it's like, no, so many people were joining that were new every day and had no context of anything. It was just like yeah, I totally understand. Pump moon, yeah. pump moon, 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 and it was like yeah, but like I'm sure yeah, it's no B renner and you know the vibes of the early Discord, I'm sure were like in- impeccable. So it changed it and in- and up to the garden party, I, and I unfortunately I couldn't attend because I was um I was in uh, abroad during that time, but yeah, I, I, up into that event, I felt like the hype had just gotten so crazy that. I really wasn't interested in meeting people in Azuki too much because it was like there were just so many new people that were maybe there for not the right reasons or exactly like like if I meet someone or take the time to spend energy with them, are they going to actually stick around? Like you know, so um, so I didn't really talk to too many people and didn't really try and get my name out there because I didn't feel like it was a like a good time. Uh, And then kind of you know when when the flood happened and all that went down, I had to reassess my exposure to Azuki, you know, as well because it's like. You know, I, I love it. I love the project, but man, maybe I do have too many anime JPEGs, you know, I don't know. So <laughs> yeah. um, thinking about that. But then once kind of the FUD died down, I'd realized that this was kind of like an ETH classic moment. What happened in Ethereum? Uh, those who aren't familiar, was a hard fork that happened in Ethereum that kind of almost brought it down. And it was just kind of like very trying time in the Ethereum community. And I realized that this is basically what the Ethereum classic hard fork was uh, but in our own sub-community. And so exactly, yeah. I realized once enough time had passed that Azuki was going to be around. It was still going to be a big cultural movement. And I realized, okay, who's ever left? And the NFT market in general just kind of took a downturn. I was like, okay, who's ever left in Azuki? These people are going to be long-term minded. And for me, my philosophy has always been, you want to play long-term games, with long term people, that's Naval quote, but it's it's so true. And so Beautiful. for me, it felt like okay, now I need to start putting energy and time and building and interacting with this community because the people who are left, the ones who have stuck around, are going to be the ones that are worth interacting and socializing with.
1: So that event is what flipped mm. the switch for you and made you even more passionate about uh, Azuki and and what the team was doing. It was after that that uh, big FUD event where you said, okay. This is now a community that whoever's here, they're here to stay and I'm going to help build with them now.
0: Right. Yeah, It was. I would say it was It was that and the NFT market just having a downturn in general, right? Like a lot of people just getting flushed out of NFTs overall, like was just a good sign to me. Uh, is yeah. Because for, for me, Ren Ren, like it was the same philosophy I took in 2018 after the ICO and all the crash that happened. It was like okay, I believe in this technology, a lot of the grifters and scammers are gone, have been wiped out. It's time to like really double down and get a job and meet people and dive into this ecosystem further because this is where the real building happens. This is where the real connections are made and friendships like, and this is where like real people and history, like the people who have an impact and the people who make a difference, it happens when no one wants to, no one wants to do to work or no one wants to be around. Like everyone enjoys Azuki during this like during the summer of Azuki, right? Which I would coin as like, you know, the March-April time, right? Like that was peak Azuki, but no one wants to be here in the winter, right? Building when it's quiet and not as hype and slow. And so for me it's always been about like um, being a part of something when there is like this 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 point in time where there's a pivotal moment that you can be a part of something and really make an impact. And it feels like you know the last three or four months 5 months, I, you know, Jesus, May was so long ago. <laughs> yeah. um, but the the last 6 or 7 months it felt like like I want to be a part of this community. I think that's a really great IP. There's a really great culture and community here and this feels like the biggest moment to kind of to kind of leverage myself and put myself out there.
1: You know what? That that means a lot to me because you've been in this space for a long time. You you've seen mm-hmm. so many black swan events uh in in the crypto space and you've yeah. wanted to stay and you've been building and building and so now having someone like you who has gone through all of that and stay in azuki and then want to build like that that that's incredible to me what about azuki makes it stand out so much from the rest of the NF- nft space to you?
0: yeah i think on um on on first glance and this is what most people would say it's the art and to some people art doesn't matter right like it's hype or history or you know whatever um but to me art is actually very important and i really love the art it to me it inspires me right like i've never felt inspired by this is gonna sound weird to say i've never felt inspired and no flames just personally i've never felt inspired by another nft like when i look at it you know when i look at azuki i think you know, the lore side of me is like, what's the story? You know, what's the background? What can I build? What can I create? And so I think, um, you know, at first glance for me, it was the art, like I felt very inspired. And I've always been someone who's kind of tinkered around and built stuff. Like I used to make my own custom shirts back in the day, you know, just for me personally, because it's like, hey, like, why would I pay $100 or whatever for a designer t-shirt when I could make something that's like unique to me and something that that you like. like. Yeah, exactly. Um, So yeah, and, and it's the same thing with the bean bags and all the stickers and all the stuff I make. It's like, you know i've never done that for anything else really other than like cool little fun projects i've had and no other nft project has made me want to just kind of mess around and just have fun and build something so i think that's it and then the other thing as well is the team is really good technically like um, I've, I've known a lot of people in crypto i've met a lot of different teams worked on a lot of different teams they're legit like they know what they're talking about these people are smart they understand the technology not only that not only do they understand the technology they understand culture Which is imperative in crypto, right? Yes. Yeah. Like you can be the most cool, hip dude that gets the youth or whatever. But if you don't understand crypto or NFTs or any of that side, technically, you're going to fail. And then you can be this crypto nerd that understands all the EIPs, all the standards, how everything interfaces. But if you don't understand why things are cool or why they're culturally relevant, then you can't build anything. But I think because they the team is both S tier in understanding culture and understanding technology. Uh, just that's that's a huge thing. Like, and then I think lastly, the thesis I have around the internet in general is that we're starting to see this massive kind of melting pot of cultures. We're starting to see Eastern cultures mix into Western cultures more and more rapidly. Yeah. You know, like anime is one of the most watched uh, categories on Netflix, right? And then. You know in the east as well like you see like english writing on clothing and brands and all that stuff and you come to the us and you see you know eastern writing on on clothing as well so like it just feels like because of the internet these cultures who are so different from each other are starting to meld and become one and so i think that's going to be the story of the internet in the next five years 10 years 20 years is that culture will be this weird kind of melting pot and the biggest narrative is eastern culture mixing with western culture and azuki stands to be at the pinnacle of this melting pot and these two cultures merging together. And so that's kind of like the final thesis I have is like, it's really set up to, to kind of take advantage of what's going to happen culturally on the internet in the next 10 to 15 years. That's
1: incredible. I love the way you uh, summarize that because that's that's exactly it. And the team has positioned themselves to be in the center of all of that and with a, with a technology and using the technology of this space. It, it, yep. it's it's every aspect of this this space and the culture they they that's right you they understand all of it and that that was beautiful i gotta say that was absolutely <laughs> beautiful i don't think i can follow up with that because that is that is exactly uh, why i'm here and why i'm building as well and i uh, i totally understand how you feel about wanting to to create what you did uh with the beanbags and the cards Mm. is just amazing for me i mean when when azuki first came out i just had this feeling of wanting to create and you know what azuki was the first like sort of community that i kind of jumped into uh I, I joined other discords like like nanopass uh i think that was really big at that time too but i didn't really i had no idea what was going on i didn't really understand how to use discord and azuki was the first the, the one that really brought me in to this mm-hmm. to the nft space because like you said like the intentionality with the videos and the art it was it was apparent and learning about their vision was just incredible to, to see that they knew what direction they wanted to take really brought me in and kept me in. And so next thing you know, I find myself creating t-shirts. I never knew how to make t-shirts, <laughs> but here I was designing them, creating a t-shirt. And then next yeah. thing you know, uh, you know, I see, I see artists start to create animations and I was like man I want to learn how to do that and so <laughs> I picked up Adobe After Effects and I was like oh, okay sure. how does this work okay. and I created my own um, animations and so I, I went from all of these different things to going to New York leaving my family leaving my kids <laughs> going to New York going to LA and meeting these people I've never met in my life was hmm. incredible to, to me and it's all because of azuki and so it's 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 a wild journey that we're on right now and and i'm glad that you are here as a builder to build with us in this space so i i kind of ask this of all of our guests um what has been your favorite highlight in in azuki in so far
0: man that's a good question i mean there's so many right like I there think is, yeah. the Clom, Klam- uh, can I give you a rundown, run run, or do I have to pick one?
1: Give, give us a rundown.
0: Okay, okay. Because like, it's, it's hard. It's like, what's your favorite movie? You know, it's like, there's different <laughs> emotions that yeah. you feel and like different vibes and all that. Uh, I mean, man, like I said, the Clomestine nostalgia and the kind of the minting day, that was crazy. You know, the, the reveal day was also crazy as well because, you know, most of the time teams show the best ones before they reveal and then you know, then they reveal and oh, you only see the once there, but Azuki was different where they showed, they showed pretty good ones, but the, the spirits, no one knew about the spirits, right? Like that was a no total surprise. Yeah. yeah. So that was crazy. Um, the enter the alley event. I'm so sad we didn't get to see each other there. I remember DMing oh, you like, "Hey, you run uh, cause you were the only, you was like, you and like two other people were the only ones I knew in Azuki at that point. I didn't really know anyone. Like I said, I didn't really socialize or talk to anyone too much. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I know the alley was crazy. Um, yeah, that was a wild experience just to see that all IRL. Uh, and then, I mean, of course, you know, I'm biased, but Bobo's Card Shop, like that was just, like, it's been yeah, so yeah. much fun. And like uh, both releases have been like super cool to just see. And it's been both different for me. But um, coming up with it, I think, let me just put it this way, building and thinking about and ideating and coming up with the concept for Bobo's Card Shop is the overall, like probably the coolest part about it, like experience I've had with Suzuki. is like building this thing and thinking of it behind the scenes. Yeah, you know what? I,
1: I want to dive into Bobo's Card Shop. Hmm. Um, could you you sort of give us a rundown of how you came up with that idea? And obviously, we've talked about it uh, back in its inception. <laughs> uh, but could you could you tell the whole audience, you know, what, what your journey was like with building out Bobo's Card Shop?
0: Yeah, yeah. So for me, I've always been a card nerd. Like some of my favorite memories are like going to the card shop when I was a kid I remember my dad in fifth grade. He took me to our, our local shop, and uh, he bought me the Yami Yugi starter deck for Yu-Gi-Oh. And like, that's like that's like a top five <laughs> yeah. childhood moment for me because uh, oh, I played yeah. a, I played too. a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh for a long time, and um, yeah, so I've always been a card nerd. And then it kind of dawned on me. I was like, man, I really love cards, and I'm sure a lot of other people in Azuki do as well. Like they have we have this shared history. Like if you're in Azuki, we probably have a lot in common. And so I was like, okay, why don't I make a Bobu card? That would be kind of sick if I made like a physical one. And so, yeah, at the end of the Alley event, um, I made these little gift bags for people called bean bags, uh, which had like a physical Bobu card. It had like some stickers. It had like a bag of beans with a little Bobu logo on it. Um, It had a lot of different things. Uh, If if you're curious what it looks like, you can go to Card Shop dot com slash about and it'll show you the the whole story there but um, yeah basically these cute little community gift bags for people and I only brought like ten or eleven or something very small and I remember pulling it out at enter the alley and I just got immediately sworn by people like yo what's that card what's this really? what is this <laughs> yeah oh yeah like immediately like people like just like would turn and like curved around towards me and I had like ten people standing around me all at once no after way. I showed one person I was like Oh boy! uh Oh, sorry, guys. And I felt bad. It's like I only, I was like, I'm trying to like, I don't know, I don't know. I, don't know. I only got ten of these. Sorry, guys. Like, I can't give it out to everyone. But yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. Anyhow, so event was awesome. Gave out a, a, a bunch of them, but after the event, I posted a photo, or maybe during, I can't remember. I posted a photo of the bean bags, and uh, the thing that caught people's eye was the card I had made. And oh. um, you know, I got a bunch of DMs on Twitter, being like, "Yo, this card's sick." I want one. Can you send me one? I'll pay whatever it costs. I don't care. And, you know, I was like, oh, that's pretty, wow. Like, okay, people really do like cards. So I was right. Um, And I think I came to realize, though, is like some of these people were based in like, you know, Asia or like Australia or South America. Like these people are all over the globe. These these people weren't like, you know, it wasn't like they're in like Dakota, like South Dakota or like New York or like something that's in the States. They're like super far away. And I, you know, doing the math, it's like, I don't know. It's going to be thirty or forty dollars probably to ship to you know Asia That's or lot, ship yeah. to Australia just for like one small card, you know. And so um, I basically told all of them, I was like, "Hey, sorry, like uh, I, you know, there's no way I can make this worth it, like to to ship this to you. It's just it's not going to make sense." And so um, I walked away from these experiences realizing, okay, there's something here. People love cards. People love Azuki. How can I scale this in a way that makes sense? Right. So I'm not sending physical cards to people across the planet. And it, I was like, Oh, well, duh. Why don't we do these as NFTs? Right. Because then anyone <laughs> yeah. can collect them, uh, from anywhere in the world. All they need is an internet connection. Boom. You just connect to the website and you mint it. And I don't need to worry about shipping or distribution for like a four, you know, for a very small piece card, like mailing that to a random part of the globe. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what the idea was like. Oh, I made these cards. People like cards, but I can't ship them. So why don't we do this as like an online thing? And then I realized like, I didn't want to just like sell cards online. I wanted there to be a story. I wanted there to be a reason for people to mint these cards and show up. And I wanted them to be uh, somewhat time gated. So the way I think of Azuki as a whole, and this is a more macro thesis that we maybe we can dive into is I view Azuki as an MMO, uh, where it's like, it's like a, it's like a video game, right? Where like, we're all players. Like, your Azuki is like your character in this MMO, and you have an item inventory, right? Where you keep all your cards, for example, or your potions or your Bobu tokens or whatever you've collected in the Azuki verse on chain. And so, um, I wanted to create like a RuneScape type event, and for those who aren't familiar, RuneScape has these events periodically uh, where you can collect these items, but only for a li- limited period of time. So there's like the Santa hat, for example, which is only available for one day back in 2002. It was a free drop, but uh, you could only claim it on that day, and because of the uh, because of that, it ended up becoming like this historic piece because only OGs could have had it. So um, the idea yes. for Boba's Card Shop was creating this this location, this cultural thing that is time gated that happens on the internet where you can collect certain cards during this window.
1: Exactly. And, and so with culture, you know, the, the thing that really grows culture is obviously constant iteration and working on it,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it's time, right? Time is the biggest factor in it. I feel like, yep. cause, cause yeah, uh, these, these Bobu cards, what is it going to look like in, you know, a year, two years, mm-hmm. it's going to be iconic to me right like the the whole minting experience and being able to to own this bobu's card in my wallet it's it's fascinating to me because this is something that a community member you created and through a proposal that we all agreed upon uh through the bobu experimentation i think it's just an incredible sequence of events that you don't really get in web2 Right. This is, this is specific to to where we are now. And I, I think it's just culturally, culturally, this is going to look so different in like a year or two from now. I, I kind of want to know like, what, what's your, what, what do you see Bobo's card shop being in a year or two?
0: Yeah. It's a good question. Um, I think I would preface this by saying that like this is just a for fun experiment by me. I don't, <laughs> I don't have any giga brain like master right. plan of what's gonna happen. I I'm I'm just in the same boat everyone else is in. I'm just making these cards and putting them out there. Um, like I said, I, I hope people don't. Go, that's why I put a mint limit on. I don't want people to go too crazy with these because it's so early and and all this other stuff. So I try and put guardrails in place so people don't do stupid things. But Um, a year from now, I have no idea. I think for me, I just like creating these things. I like kind of putting them out there and seeing what happens. And I think from the last release, so to give some context, the last release was really interesting to me because we did Lunar New Year Bobu, right? So, um, one thing that I've really been enjoying, and I don't know if it's gonna be consistent, but I do really like it, is always having a free card for Bobu holders. I think it makes the event so much more fun and open to everyone, right? Like you don't have to pay, because my, my sentiment is, is like, listen, if you don't wanna buy a card, that's fine. I totally understand, but I still think there should be a free card for people who wanna participate or wanna show up and do this thing. So in the first release, there was Bobu, just default Bobu, we had a proposal, uh, BoboDAO allowed me to create IP using Bobo, create a Bobo card that was free for all registered Bobo holders. And originally, when I was thinking of the card shop, I was thinking of in this sense of like, okay, once you do an Azuki, you're done, right? It's like you check it off the list, like you can never do it again. And so, in my head, like the number of cards that were possible or what you could do with this thing was somewhat limited. But, you know, this last release, we did Lunar New Year Bobo, which is basically Bobo that has, um, kind of like a layer on top of it it's it has it's like a reskin of bobu where he's dressed up for lunar new year and this was kind of a massive breakthrough for me kind of understanding what's possible with the card shop in that um you know like you can have more than just one card for one Azuki. it's not a 2d environment it's 3d like you can basically you can make as many cards as your imagination allows like it's it's not an azuki limiting factor it's an imagination limiting factor and to me this last release has got me really excited about what's possible and what can be built because of this fact that you can build multiple iterations of the cards. It's not just one. It's like in Pokemon, there's like Pikachu, but then there's like happy birthday Pikachu. And like, there's all these different iterations of the Pikachu card. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just, to me, it really opened my mind. Like there are some like, really cool things. And I think I don't want to release too much alpha. Um, but the model I have for, for Bobo's card shop is it's bringing a Zuki culture on chain. And by that, I mean, it's like, how do we create these events that happen during a period of time that you can participate in that you can point back and say, yes, I'm an OG, but Oh, how OG am I? I participated in this, (laughs) right? Like to give cultural context, to move this stuff on chain. It's cool to have it on the collector page, but like how do like how do we think about these things on-chain? And how do we have like proof and like actual items that you can hold in your wallet, not just like a web 2 database that shows like an icon or whatever when you've done a certain thing? Um so to me, it's like, yeah, Bobo's card shop is this really cool thing. It's kind of this corner on the internet that creates these like Azuki events, Azuki experiences, and how do we like build this out and like how do we bring this culture on chain um in in like a, a coherent manner? And I'm thinking about things that are, you know, not only Azuki's, but like add to the Azuki lore, add to the Azuki world beyond what the team's doing, right? How do I add to the culture? How do I add to the lore stack by having these cards? Um Again, I don't want to leak too much out here, but yeah, how do we think about expanding the lore and culture beyond just Azuki's?
1: Exactly. And there's so many ways to do that. And uh, you know what? I think I speak for everyone... When I say thank you for creating something like this and giving us Bobu holders a chance to partake on this on-chain event. And I imagine that in a year or two from now, Bobu's cards is going to look different in, <laughs> in many different aspects. And I think it's going to just be a lot of fun to to watch evolve. It's gonna evolve a lot because I mean, with with Azuki and this whole space, like the technology is is just rapidly growing, mm-hmm. uh, and th- there's still a lot of uh, new technology uh,
0: to be brought forth. And you know what? I, I, speaking of tech, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, sorry, just one last point on the card shop as well. Ranren is, and just kind of my Bobu philosophy overall is: I feel like um, just talking to some of the Azuki holders who might be listening to this is don't underestimate Bobu. There is a very strong community behind it. There are a lot of people who are engaged, a lot of people who love Bobu and think it's like Bobu in some ways might be the flagship for Azuki going forward because it is so much more affordable. Like the way people usually enter into Azuki is the first thing they do is they either buy or are gifted a Bobu. And so, um, you know, Bobu I think plays a bigger role than, than most Azuki holders realize. And as well, um, you know, I've even been surprised how much this card shop means to some of the Bobo holders. You know, I've had a lot of people reach out and DM me and say, "Wow, like, you know, I've been a Boba holder since mint, and this has been amazing for me. Like, you know, we haven't really, you know, we're still waiting on the bucket hats and a few other things, and like, this has been this has been so awesome for me." Or like, "Hey, you know, I live in Southeast Asia, and like, you know, even though." Like, you know, this is a free, like a free NFT. Like, it means a lot to me. Like, it's something I can afford. It's something I can add to yeah. my wallet to collect. Uh, so That's incredible. I've been personally blown away at how much this is meant to people um, and how much they care about these things, you know? I mean, because for me, it's just like a for fun event, you know, and I, I love it. I enjoy it and I love putting it out there. But to some people, like, it means a lot. And so I'm just glad to hear it.
1: I love it. You can't underestimate Bobu. He's he's won <laughs> in, in the Grand Prix. You cannot yep. underestimate him. he's, he's been to his ability you know? is amazing. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. been to space. Like you, you, you're right. You cannot underestimate Bobu. And people might underestimate his ability to reach out to the world right now. But who knows? We'll see in a couple of years here how what he'll grow into because this so, there's just so much lore to be had with with Bobu as well. So yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna grow him out. I think we will.
0: Yeah, and that was some of. The- that was some of the feedback um, I actually gave Z when I met up with him was like, hey man, like don't – I know like you've got stuff going on behind the scenes and everything but Bobo, trust me, it is a – I, I think even more than we even realize, it is – the like he is a great um, entry point to the space and a great – Ambassador, so uh i definitely hope that the azuki team is thinking about Bobo more and how to activate him more because i do think it's such a a huge opportunity as well
1: you're in the front lines you see it and i think it's incredible that people have actually reached out to you and and told you how much it meant to them i think that's amazing and you know what we we, we won't forget about bobu because i'll i'm you know what i'm going to tell you something as well uh after the podcast when it comes Mm. to to all that as well and (laughs) it'll be it'll be fun to talk about um for sure and so i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about uh the technology that azuki has brought forth uh Mm. they've they've been instrumental in this space and in bringing uh technology that works right and 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 they've proven that they do understand this space so my question to you is what is what, what is your most favorite technology that they have come out with
0: yeah i mean obviously by use 721a is like the default standard for creating a 721 contract like it's super efficient if you're batch minting if you need to mint a lot of 721s um yeah. but i think like for me personally the thing that i'm most excited to play around with is uh pbt and this isn't some just want to be you know Give a disclaimer here, Renren. We're not doing physical cards. Anyone who perked up at that, no, yeah, no we're not. These cards are digital. But um, for me, I do love the PBT standard because people have been talking about building something like this forever. Like, oh, what if we do this? Like this a similar kind of schema. But they're one of the few people to actually you know sit down and actually write it out and submit an EIP and do all this. So that's really cool exactly. to me. And just like a super nerdy detail about PBT that's like probably more in depth than most people need to know is that The coolest part about it to me is it uses a block hash in a way I've never seen before, where the signatures are time gated with a block. When you, when you prompt the chip for a signature, part of the data that gets signed is the most recent block hash. And they use this block hash as a way to restrict how long the signatures are valid for, because when you go to submit the signature into the contract to transfer the NFT. Basically, there's a again. I'm going to get nerdy here, Renren, So forgive go me. Go for it. I love there's it. There's a there's a getter method in Solidity. If you pass it a block number, it'll retrieve the block hash. And so, <clears throat> um, when you actually go to transfer it, the contract retrieves the block hash for that number and checks whether or not it's the same. Um, whether or not it's the same as what was signed, and if that block number is within a certain range. So if the block hash is within. Yeah, or the block numbers within thirty blocks or hundred blocks or whatever. Um, yeah, then then it works. So it's just a really nerdy See, way that they've set up to make sure that you can't spawn camp someone and like say for example, Renren, and I own a, an ambush hoodie and I scan it twenty thousand times and get twenty thousand signatures. There needs to be a system in place that if I scan if I stockpile a bunch of signatures and I sell you the hoodie. How do I make it so that I can't use those signatures in the future to resend the NFT back to myself? And that's yeah, how they do it: exactly. is using the block hash it time it time gates the signatures, so they expire after like an hour.
1: I have a lot more questions when it comes into the actual coding and work that was put into the time gated check of these PBT NFTs. I'll have to ask what that was like for the team. You know, really, it's really cool to see how PBT is able to link the physical and digital world and oh. how azuki was able to actually implement something of value at such a high standard so yeah i i guess it's safe to say uh the pbt is your favorite piece of technology that they've implemented
0: <laughs> yeah i think for me because it just inspires me so much like there's so many cool things you can do that haven't been done yet in crypto
1: yeah and and, and again we're so early in that who knows what they have up their sleeves with this technology because uh they they actually mentioned it when they released pbt but they talked about you know quests and stuff like that and who knows what the next event's gonna look like
0: yep yep who knows i uh i have my theories but uh we'll save that for a later day (laughs)
1: yeah exactly we'll find out we'll find out Mm -hmm. so zuki has definitely been uh, a strong part of our our lives here so it's, it's incredible to have you on this journey with Azuki and watching you build. Uh, I'm just excited for what else is to come. So thank you for being here, man. And I kind of wanted to give you this one last question when it comes to Azuki. Mm. Uh, is there anything that you want to say to the Azuki
0: community? I mean, th- First off, thank you so much for all the support. Like it means a lot around Bobo's card shop. Like for me, this has like a, been a four fun project. I've been working on it outside of work. So like, for example, the Lunar New Year event, I would get off work and then I would kind of work on the card shop till like midnight or one in the morning sometimes, like just putting everything I have into it. Because again, it's, it's, it's a labor of love. I love it. Like I wake up in the morning. The first thing I think about is a card shop. I go to bed. The last thing I think about is the card shop. Like I'm obsessed with it and it's just really great to see people support me whether that's getting an edit or retweeting it or minting the free bobo card it doesn't matter but people just being excited and enjoying it because you know i was concerned like how is this going to be received like you know people are going to like this you know i mean that's we all have those concerns when we're working or building on something um but i just want to say thank you to everyone who's been supportive and 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 helped me with the card shop because it means a lot to me
1: and thank you for building it so now, you once told me, mm. uh, you know, I, I find with passion projects like, like this, and you were talking about Bowie's Card Shop, it's important to work quick when you have the inspiration before it fades into an idea. Yep. And that actually really stuck to me. And it's, it's how I was able to turn this podcast from an idea to, well, what it is today. <laughs> So thank you for helping me create this uh, this podcast because you did have a hand in it just by saying those few words.
0: I'm glad to hear, it, man, I, and I enjoy listening to the podcast. So it's it's awesome that I'm able to you know reap the reward of giving you that that advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. I, I enjoy I enjoy talking to everyone in the community, and uh, this is just the beginning. But there's there's so much more to come. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Nader. You know for joining me today and. Thank you to my beautiful audience for sticking around and listening. If you want to learn more about Nader and what he's doing, you'll you'll find in the show notes below. I've I've included many resources, including um, Nader's GitHub to learning about crypto, mm. uh, the website to Bobo's Card Shop, uh, his noun style explanation minted on Zora, and as well as his Twitter profile. Thank you, Nader. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Renren. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Behind The PFP. Please consider subscribing and following the podcast. Before we close this week's episode out, I want to give a special thank you to MXU. You may have noticed the new dope intro and outro music that he created especially for me. He tailored to the type of vibe I wanted to foster and I cannot thank him enough for creating such a sick beat. You can find his Twitter down below if you have any inquiries to his music. And with that, I'll catch you on the flip side.